0: Part 1. Foundations Chapter 1. The First Christians. Radical Love and Community Terrell grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, a town at that time dominated by fervent evangelicals. His brother and he, at school and on the street, were frequently approached by young people, asking them, Have you been saved? He was just inclining toward religion as a baptised but long-inactive Latter-day Saint, but the question had absolutely no traction with him. First, he didn't feel in danger of damnation. Second, he had no idea what evangelicals' conception of damnation really meant. And third, it didn't seem that any condition worth aspiring to could be attained by on-the-spot verbal confession, even if sincere. As he analyzes such encounters now, decades later, his question is, how did Christians move from the man and message depicted in the New Testament to these zealous missionaries offering to save me from damnation? Is there a readily discernible core to that world-changing revolution of 2,000 years ago? And if so, in what key ways was that essential core transformed and deformed? in succeeding centuries. David Bentley Hart characterizes the mortal incarnation of Jesus Christ, what Nephi calls the condescension of God, this way. History has been invaded by God in Christ in such a way that nothing can stay as it was. All terms of human community and conduct have been altered at the deepest levels. But altered how precisely? What changed with the advent of Christ and his teachings? Why, having encountered him, could we no longer be at ease, in T.S. Eliot's words, with an alien people clutching their gods? For Hart, what changed were the terms of human community and conduct? By itself, that reason seems to be severely inadequate. Why did Christianity represent a revised imperative, to build community and act according to new norms. Many religious revolutionaries from Buddha to Gandhi have instigated new codes of conduct and ideals for community building. Did Jesus preach something yet more radical? A partial answer is implicit in Hart's earlier phrase, something about the way in which God invaded history in Christ. For Hart and most Christians, Christ represents a unique instance of God being made visible and approachable to us. We can now walk through the fog of God toward the clarity of Christ, in one poet's words. This accessibility to God is generally called the miracle of the incarnation. God, the invisible, the incomprehensible, the creator of the universe, wrapped in night's mantle stole into a manger. The Christian church would spend the next four centuries struggling to work out the precise meaning of that incarnation, that such-a-way of God becoming Christ. Church councils and church fathers were so preoccupied with that question that they seemed to have mental effort for little else. At Nicaea and Chalcedon, in chambers and treatises, they debated... Was Christ distinct from the Father, a mode or aspect of the Father, of similar substance to the Father, of the same substance as the Father, subordinate to the Father, fully equal, co-eternal with the Father, begotten, made? Those questions are largely academic, and today they mostly fail to interest, motivate or inspire us. Can we back up and ask the question again? Before the theologians took over the conversation, what was it about Christ, the person and the message, that was galvanizing, transformative, and so appealing that it led a small band of Galileans to reshape the world and lay the foundations for a church of billions? That seems a more fruitful direction of inquiry. Let's go back to the beginning and reassess in what the original Christian revolution consisted. One possibility, in Christ for the first and only time in human history, we see ourselves as we are meant to become. We see in Christ our own possible destiny, to be fully and completely like Him. Infinite love and goodness have a form, a face, a healing hand that reaches out to touch to embrace. This we discover to our shock and surprise. This is God. For Christ, we learn, is not a mere earthly version of a distant, unapproachable, foggy God. God the Son is the perfect reflection of exactly who God the Father always was and is. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. This is not a metaphor, not mystic wisdom, but the plain and precious truth unveiled. So when God, the Son says to our even greater shock and surprise, come, follow me, he is saying much more than modern Christians realize. Joseph Smith merely restated the astounding essence of Christ's original message. God found himself in the midst of spirits and glory and he saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest, who were less in intelligence, could have a privilege to advance like himself and be exalted with him. To follow Christ is to follow his footsteps in becoming what he is, a joint heir of God, as Paul called us. John, the most intimate of Christ's disciples and friends, and perhaps the most reliable of his chroniclers, understood history's invasion by God in just such terms. In his first epistle, he expresses with poignant simplicity the essence of the good news. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. The original message was one of appalling wonder and sublime simplicity. Jesus declares to his Father, in language not to be easily mistaken, that he wanted his disciples even all of them, to be as himself and the Father. And that never-varying ambition extends to every member of every nation, kindred and tongue, who will come and partake of the waters of life freely. We may have a hard time feeling the shock of that astonishing idea. God walks among us as a minister and mentor and fellow traveller. He breaks bread with his friends Weeps over the death of a friend, dines with sinners, and washes the feet of his apostles. God the Son then tells us that we, daughters and sons, may be glorified together with him. It was this same John, according to tradition, who heard the Lord proclaim, See, I am making all things new, all things, a new identity foreshadows a new destiny. We who saw ourselves only in a mirror dimly are suddenly God's progeny in preparation to be co-heirs with Christ. If the literal imitatio dei, imitation of God, is the first great principle, then the second principle now emerges. A universal parent meant a universal sisterhood and brotherhood among all people the idea took concrete, transformative shape. According to the early church father Tertullian, the first Christians were ridiculed because we call each other brother and sister. This was no mere metaphor. Their understanding of the interrelatedness of the human family as a whole was utterly transformative of every connection, every gesture, every aspiration toward genuine community. For as these early Christians insisted to a sceptical world, we are your brothers and sisters as well. New paradigms bring forth new fruits. What marks us in the eye of our enemies is our practice of loving kindness. Only look, they say, how they love one another. These first Christians turned ad hoc communities into a society governed by love. A historian of early Christianity confirms the world-defying novelty and its results. The catalyst to the Christian revolution was the presence of a group, joined by spiritual power, into an extended family. How novel was the concept of a universal love, a love that encompasses the entire human family within God's embrace, and eventually in our embrace as well. The Jewish scholar Meyer Soloveitchik asserts that this concept did not spring from Christianity's antecedents. He writes, To my knowledge, not a single Jewish source asserts that God deeply desires to save all humanity, nor that he loves every member of the human race. The way in which early Christians understood and practiced love was a marvel to all who witnessed it. The detractors and disciples alike. The 4th century monk Rufinus described how Christians treated strangers. He writes, Then we came to Nitria, the best known of all the monasteries of Egypt, about 40 miles from Alexandria. And as we drew near to that place and they realized that foreign brethren were arriving, they poured out of their cells like a swarm of bees and ran to meet us with delight and alacrity, many of them carrying containers of water and of bread. When they had welcomed us, first of all they led us with psalms into the church and washed our feet, and one by one they dried them with a linen cloth they were girded with, as if to wash away the fatigue of the journey. What can I say that would do justice to their humanity, their courtesy and their love? Nowhere have I seen love flourish so greatly Nowhere with such quick compassion, such eager hospitality. Christian love transcended anything the ancient world had seen. Rodney Stark notes how through recurrent plagues, as citizens fled infected areas, Christians remained behind to nurse and minister to the sick at the cost of their lives. Around 260 AD, at the height of yet another epidemic, the Christian Dionysius recorded Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours, and cheerfully accepting their pains." Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. In exploring the appeal of early Christianity, the cynic Friedrich Nietzsche could only marvel at the gullibility of the teeming throngs of converts who had found this better way. Power and dominion were the source of the only real happiness, he insisted. The rich, the well-born, the noble, these possessed the genuine article— Until clever priests convinced them that some phantom joy was only found in pity, humility, selflessness, and fellow feeling. A slave revolt in morality, he called it. Yet even that great sceptic could not explain how the noble, the powerful, the rich, how they too were persuaded to willingly forsake their privilege and aspire instead to humility, to selflessness to compassion. Christianity survived amid pogroms and persecutions and suspicious philosophers because it quenched a thirst that had never found perfect resolution. As Martin Buber diagnosed the essential human condition, the longing for relation is primary, the cupped hand into which the being that confronts us nestles. Christianity revealed the Spirit's true liniments hidden beneath the world of transactional relationships based on commerce, power dynamics, and self-interest. Christianity exposed the deeper roots of our being, fragmented individuals finding fullness only in a thriving web of relationships, and pervading these relationships was a principle unseen in human history. The dissolution of hierarchy, status, and oppressive power dynamics. Full equality in Christ. One historian notes, The lasting impression left by the early church membership is one of social diversity. Yet it went with an ideal of human equality. In Christ, taught the Christians, all were equal, and the distinctions of rank and degree were irrelevant. In church meetings, Educated people had to sit as equals among other men slaves and petty artisans. The revolution never found its perfect form, but the template for Zion had been drawn. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Nor, said Paul, is there male and female, for in the Lord woman is not independent of man or man, independent of woman. The Magna Carta of humanity, one scholar called this Pauline pronouncement, there is nothing like it in all of antiquity. The very angels of this new dispensation call themselves our fellow servants, and had not even Christ, King of Kings, washed the feet of his disciples and said, I do not call you servants any longer, but I have called you friends. Diversity, But not division, variety, but equality. God's love is going to be a central theme in what follows, so clarity is essential here. Love has been so commodified, trivialized, and banalized that it is hard to break free of cliche in describing love's new dominion over human connectedness, that the Christian message ushered in. And yet, as with the Zion of the Nephites, love's dominion was short lived. This is immediately evident to the most casual student of Christian history, which is essentially one long chronicle of the unspeakable brutality of man against man. How was the gospel rooted and grounded in love, employed to justify genocide, crusades, pogroms, torture? How did we travel from the revolutionary circles of compassion for which Christianity was known, to the Inquisition, and wars of religious persecution. Another way of framing this question, can we in fact find the root of Christianity's grievous wounds and thereby trace the need for the restoration to the distortion and corruption of the meaning of divine love and to the forms it took in the institutional church? Clearly, at some point in the Christian past, God's love was horribly debased, and believers' understanding of it was warped and perverted. We find a powerful instance of and explanation for this progressive corruption of love in reading Dante's Inferno, a long poem that describes a pilgrim's journey through the circles of hell, escorted by his guide, the poet Virgil. Though rightly heralded as a masterwork of Western civilization, we find in this medieval work a deeply distorted, and disturbing sense of God and God's love. At one point, Dante sees the agony of a tortured soul and asks the reader, How I could check my tears, when near at hand I saw the image of our humanity distorted so. Certainly I wept. Seeing Dante's compassion, Virgil rounds on him furiously. Still, still like the other fools, There is no place for pity here. Who is more arrogant within his soul? Who is more impious than one who dares to sorrow at God's judgment? In a different scene, Dante sees another sinner trying to find respite from his sufferings by latching onto the boat he and Virgil are travelling in. This time, Dante responds differently. May you weep and wail to all eternity, for I know you, hell dog, filthy as you are. He beats the sinner off, with his guide shouting, Down! Down! with the other dogs! Then Virgil turns to Dante and embraces him, saying, Indignant spirit, I kiss you as you frown. Blessed be she who bore you. We find the contrast between Dante's naturally compassionate, tender-hearted response to that of a hardened and judgmental tormentor, horrifying and instructive. The transition in him is horrifying because of the sheer spectacle of rationalized brutality, and it is horrifyingly instructive because we see in his transition an almost casual instance of the implicit argument that God's love is of an entirely different complexion than our love, that it is not just quantitatively superior to ours, but qualitatively distinct and foreign to our innate compassion by attributing such love to a God who in those early centuries was coming to be situated beyond the human categories of comprehension, one could reshape it in any deformed way one chose and call it love. Now we begin to understand how, starting a few centuries before the medieval period, Christians were routinely burning men and women alive and massacring other humans by the thousands in the name of God's love. Their bodies must be destroyed, that their souls may be saved, wrote one papal legate. Here is how one Christian celebrated the fruits of the first crusade. If you had been there, you would have seen our feet colored to our ankles with the blood of the slain. But what more shall I relate? None of them, the Muslims, were left alive. Neither women nor children were spared. Afterward, all clergy, laymen, went to the sepulchre of the Lord and his glorious temple singing. With fitting humility, they repeated prayers and made their offering at the holy places they had long desired to visit. Our point is not that Christians have committed atrocities in God's name while preaching, he is a God of love. That is true. But it is also a tired cliché. Our point is that the way we imagine God's love had to undergo a process of contamination and dreadful distortion before Christians could readily believe, as Dante did, that a God of love rejoiced in the screams and blood of his children. This particular transformation is powerful evidence of why theology is not just abstract speculation disconnected from the demands of real life in the world. Francine Bennion has asked, Does theology really matter? Can't we just be kind and patient without worrying about various points of theology? It matters, she insists. And it does. Even a word as universally recognized as love has radically different forms, manifestations, and effectual meanings depending on the framework of belief in which we use it. History proves that moral mayhem may result when the distinctively Christian love is cut loose from its theological moorings. This, in fact, is a principal thesis of this book. As one example, a historian described the medieval consequences of the transformation of love we are here illustrating. He wrote, the truest kindness was cruelty, the truest mercy, harshness. How and when did that shift occur? How did we arrive, for the majority of Christian history, at a God who, in the words of one hugely influential medieval voice, looks upon us in our wretchedness, but feels not the effect, saves the wretched, but is touched by no fellow suffering in that wretchedness? Edward Beecher spoke truly when he warned that of all errors, None are so fundamental and so wide-reaching in their evil tendencies as results and errors with respect to the character of God. We should all be alarmed, concerned at least, to realize how susceptible we are as products of our own historical inheritance to having our view of God shaped by cultural conditioning. Belonging to the restored Church does not make us immune to such influences. Remember that Joseph Smith was speaking to Latter-day Saints when he warned of the tenacity of inherited traditions as handcuffs and chains and shackles. But he also suggested optimism about the way forward. A correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes, he taught, was essential to a transformative faith. For Joseph Smith an absolutely fundamental purpose of the restoration was to replace the slanderous character imputed to God with a correct understanding, consistent with the original good news. Clearly, Christians have recently made great strides in returning to holier and more wholesome conceptions of God. Rob Bell has taught millions about a God who intends to save the entire human family, N.T. Wright has worked to shift the heart of Christian concern from personal salvation to societal justice. Timothy Keller emphasizes the prodigality of God's love, and Richard Raw advocates a more gentle, contemplative, and hopeful Christian practice. On many fronts, Christianity is experiencing renewal and revitalization. Latter-day Saints can find much to applaud and much to learn from earnest God and truth seekers across the spectrum. Other religions of the world similarly have much to teach us about lives of compassion and holiness. At the same time, Latter-day Saints have a battery of resources available to us that we have not fully explored in our quest for a religion that is pure and undefiled. In particular, we have an outline of the great story, the original plan, that provides us a more ample context, as well as additional compass points to orient ourselves and make sense of the journey. This background could fully rectify the damage done by the long chain of historical assaults on God's character. Recuperating this great story gives context to the kind of absolute love we ascribe to God. It reveals the primeval setting in which that love launched the plan of human happiness. And the story gives concrete embodiment and recognizable form to the love that undergirds the universe and our place within it. The great story has two pivotal features. When these two features disappeared, the whole Christian vocabulary became unmoored from its foundations and meanings become fractured, disjointed, recast. Salvation, heaven, the fall, sin. Repentance, forgiveness, justice, atonement, grace, obedience, worthiness, and judgment all have come to mean something very different from what they meant in the context of a different story with a different beginning, a different plot, and different characters. The two pivotal features of the great story are one, the premortality of humans, and two, the parenthood of God. We believe that inherent in these two seminal concepts are the seeds of the only gospel understanding that can fully address what Nephi called the state of awful woundedness that we inhabit. Thinking through the implications of those two ideas can help us excise from our language the destructive traditions of the fathers that in Joseph Smith's language have filled the world and sometimes the minds of the saints with confusion. So let us look at how those two ideas ground an entire gospel framework. Then we will turn to examine the catastrophe that ensued when those ideas were exiled from Christian history. Premortality. Premortality is not just an addendum to the story of human life. If you change the beginning, you change the ending and everything in between. Our story begins with freely acting, independent, divine spirits who are presented with an invitation, aeons before planet Earth exists. Beings of perfect holiness propose giving an innumerable host of intelligences in whose midst they dwelt a pathway to their own exalted condition. For those willing to endure a discipline, education of suffering, Full participation in an exalted heavenly family was promised. If you live in this world, then you were one of those who chose to engage in the trial by existence, in the poet's words, while those who lingered behind view once more the sacrifice of those who, for some good discerned, will gladly give up paradise. We chose this existence because of an everlasting covenant into which we entered receiving our parents' assurance that their work and glory was to bring about our immortality and eternal life. In Brigham Young's economical summary of the opening curtain in the human saga, our divine spirit, he said, would be joined to a body. Then this body and spirit work jointly towards sanctification until that day comes when we may love all with a divine affection. Our first apostolic theologian, Pali Pratt elaborated, our natural affections are the very mainsprings of life and happiness. They are the cement of all virtuous and heavenly society, aided and directed by the light of heaven. Every affection, attribute, power, and energy of your body and mind may be cultivated, increased, enlarged, perfected, for the glory and happiness of yourself and all of those whose good fortune it may be to be associated with you. We have heard this story countless times, but its ramifications never sound worn to the perceptive listener. Our lives and destiny are grounded in the confidence of divine beings, in their confidence that they can shepherd us, gods in embryo, to be the kind of beings in the kind of relationships that constitute life eternal. A love beyond imagining prompted the proposal, and a love of infinite potency will assure the proposal's consummation. We may wander, stumble, or lose our bearings, but the promise, Thou art ever with me, and all that I have is Thine, was engraved in our hearts. God ever keepeth us in His blessed love. The restoration clarification of our beings as eternal rather than created is a seismic theological shift. In the book of Abraham, humanity is referred to as intelligences, spirits, and souls. The names are used interchangeably, denoting a core of human identity without beginning or end. As Aristotle stated, that which is created cannot be free which means that agency could not exist, let alone flourish, if we were created beings. The Creator is responsible for the nature and failures of the created, whether cookies, a bridge, or a human soul. While our theology does not put us on a par with God originally, it does make clear that we are consubstantial with God, and that we are essentially divine eternal beings. And our theology makes us not willing subjects of the Father's plan, but collaborators in its very inception. A close reading of Abraham, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, suggests that premortal spirits were engaged in the organization of the world. And there stood one among them, spirits, souls, intelligences, that was like unto God. And he said unto those who are with him, We will go down for there is space there and we will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell these backgrounds to our pre-mortal life mortality's purpose and divine vocation were fairly widespread in the first few centuries of the church we see this teaching in the new testament in john chapter 9 and in the writings of church fathers and theologians whose names are now unfamiliar to the average Latter-day Saint, Pseudo-Clement, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Evagrius, Didymus the Blind, Synesius of Cyrene, Nemesius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Jerome, and the most influential church father of them all, the young Augustine. In the words of Origen, the doctrine's foremost expositor and defender, you the soul, could not have reached the palm groves unless you had experienced the harsh trials. You could not have reached the gentle springs without first having to overcome sadness and difficulties. The education of the soul is an age-long spiritual adventure. It began in premortal realms, continuing after death. With this truth in mind, as we hope to show, it is impossible understand salvation, heaven, the fall, sin, judgment, or kindred terms in the ways that our brothers and sisters in other Christian traditions do. The Parenthood of God William Ellery Channing called the parental character of God the first great doctrine of Christianity. However, this doctrine is meaningful and efficacious only to the extent that it is read as more than sentimental analogy or impoverished metaphor. Parents who understand their sacred role love in a particular way, with particular selflessness and steadfastness. They seek the good of their children above their own. They give direction and counsel, exercise forgiveness, know and feel and understand all in ways vastly different than is the case with kings and sovereigns on the one hand, and unfeeling and unmovable platonic entities on the other. Parental love is absolute, it is redemptive, it is universal, and it is unshakable. As with our understanding of our origin in those premortal realms, an inspired understanding of God as our actual father and mother before creation's dawn is radically incompatible With centuries of Christian writings about human nature, the fall, atonement, repentance, forgiveness, worthiness, justice, or kindred terms in our religious language. Parents, of course, comprise a companionship. That a Heavenly Father is joined in eternal partnership with a Heavenly Mother is no small contribution to current religious understanding. Heavenly Mother's emergence out of obscurity changes everything, profoundly. This doctrine, and this doctrine alone, not only for the first time in modern history, fully dignifies one half of the human race, but also makes possible and reasonable a return to an anthropomorphic God, a God in whose image we all are. In addition, the doctrine of Heavenly Mother lays the groundwork for a truly sociable heaven in which the relationships of family association flourish, and suggests that a change in pronoun may be in order. In the paragraphs that follow, we will discuss each of these four points in more detail. In the Christian West, as the great feminist figure Elizabeth Cady Stanton recognized, any challenge to patriarchal supremacy, any movement in the direction of equality between the sexes, could emerge only in defiance of, or in blatant disregard for, traditional Christian dogma. This is because Christianity posited a male supreme deity who existed in gendered isolation and it made any ideal of godlike striving predicated on a male model. Stanton wrote, The first step in the elevation of woman to her true position as an equal factor in human progress is the cultivation of the religious sentiment in regard to her dignity and quality the recognition by the rising generation of an ideal heavenly mother. Stanton could not find specific biblical basis for her reconstruction of the Trinity, but thought the let us of Genesis opened a door. Since her time, an abundant and flourishing scholarship has found numerous traces of the feminine divine in the biblical text, as well as in a host of extra-biblical and archaeological sources, The Latter-day Saint reconstruction of Eve's role as noble pioneer rather than frail defaulter accomplished much work toward assigning to woman a place of equal privilege and honor. Recuperating our Heavenly Mother was even more momentous, for it makes the idea of exaltation of the imitatio Dei, the full and complete imitation of the Divine, a living possibility, a vivid option for both woman and man alike. The existence of a mother in heaven is more than a theological proposition. It can be a transformative reality. The apostle Erastus Snow taught that to the saints this great truth is most precious, precious to contemplate, and it is an inexpressible privilege to be able to draw nigh unto him and say our Father and immediately this great truth is impressed upon our minds, we very naturally begin to associate it with the idea of mother. When Joseph reworked the Genesis account of creation, he made this significant revision. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. In the image of his own body, male and female, created he them. That revision may be the earliest hint of Joseph's awareness that the father comprised one half of the category God. In addition to a he, there has to be a she if both Adam and Eve are in God's bodily image. If God does have a body, then it would have to be a template for the entire human family. This is made even clearer in Joseph's production of the book of Abraham. The gods went down to organize man in their own image, in the image of the gods to form they him, male and female to form they them. Note here that Joseph has recast the word create as organize, recognizing the eternity of our intelligence or essential identity. What we know of love we first learn from our place in a web of relationships, eternal life which we understand to be the kind of life God leads, incorporates not just their character, but the relationality that defines their existence and is the source of their joy. Life as a school of love finds greater meaning and relevance if we anticipate that the bonds we form, our connections and attachments and shared intimacy, are not transient, but preparations for an eternal sociability modelled on this one. We learn to love all with a divine affection, as Brigham Young said. Elder John A. Widso wrote, The glorious vision of life hereafter is given radiant warmth by the thought that we have a mother who possesses the attributes of godhood. The apostle Erastus Snow went further. Deity consists of man and woman. I have another description. There never was a god, and there never will be in all eternities except they are made of these two component parts, a man and a woman, the male and the female. If this is true, then when we employ the term God, it will often be the case that two divine beings are behind the expression. The writer of Genesis employed the name Adam to refer to a fully collaborative couple. Adam is effectively their surname. Just as Adam can refer to both Adam and Eve, there will be instances when God is rightly followed by the pronoun they. Brigham Young taught that we were created in the image of our Father and our Mother, the image of our God. His statement indicates that calling Heavenly Mother God is consistent with the biblical account of the creation of both the male and female being in the image of God. These two doctrines are premortal life with the plans there set in motion and the true parental nature of God are the foundations of the Restoration and are unique in the current Christian world. Their significance is the reason why a wholesale rehabilitation of religious vocabulary is called for. To quote Edward Beecher once more, if there is in fact a malignant spirit of great and all-pervading power intent on making a fixed and steady opposition to the progress of the cause of God, he would pervert and disgrace the story of our true origins in a premortal world and our true relation to God. We now turn to a discussion of how those two truths were lost and with what catastrophic and lingering results